This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Hey everyone, Fraser here. So this is a very special episode of Astronomy Cast that we recorded in middle of October with Paul M. Sutter. And he is a fellow at the Astronomical Observatory of Trieste and a visiting scholar at the Ohio State University Center for Cosmology and Astroparticle Physics. Pamela and, and I were in town at OSU doing a symposium and we were able to sort of get a little bit of Paul's time to talk about his specialty which is cosmic voids. So we're talking about these, these big gaps in the largest scale structure of the universe. And so the conversation goes on for half an hour, 45 minutes, and it's sort of a round table with the three of us, standard astronomy cast style, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So um, if you want more information on Paul, you should uh, follow his podcast, which is called Ask a Spaceman. And uh, you can find that wherever good podcasts are distributed. All right, enough. Uh, enjoy the show. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by 8th Light Inc. 8th Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. 8th Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.8thlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8th l-i-g-h-t dot com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. So once again, we are pleased to announce that Casper Mattresses is our sponsor for Astronomy Cast. Uh, they've been sponsoring us now for like a year, and uh, I know it's uh, working out really well for them, and it's working out really well for, for us as well. Uh, I think as, as people may or may not know, uh, we got our sample mattress. I then had to leave mine in the States, so I ended up buying another mattress for, uh, for my bed. I got the king-sized one, and uh, now the uh, I bought another one for the spare bedroom, so now I've got two Casper mattresses in the house, plus the one that they gave us as a as a trial. How is your Casper mattress working out, Pamela? Mine, so so mine aren't multiplying the way yours are. I still have just the one. It's uh, on my day bed and it makes me happy. Um, that con- combination of latex foam and memory foam, you don't overheat in the summer. And now that it's getting to be winter, um, I can snuggle up in bed and I don't have to wait for the mattress to warm up. I just snuggle into my blankets and I'm good to sleep. Yeah, and this is the part that I hadn't tested out before because mine was down in Louisiana, it's very hot, and now as it's getting colder here in Canada, it's great. It's you know, as you said, it's not like you jump into a cold bed. Uh, so it is, you know, and what's great about these mattresses, right, is it's a risk-free trial and return. You can order one. It comes in this crazy box that you open it up, and then a transforming mattress pops out of this box, uh, and you can try it for 100 days, and then. If you don't like it, just, you know, the delivery's free and you can get it returned as well. And and they're made right here in the United States. So it's not like they're shipping to you from China. You're not waiting for them to cross on some weird boat. They're just getting shipped to you in this magical box with a magical tool for you to... It, it's really kind of amazing. They just expand out like those magic pill creatures you get right. at the science museum. Totally. But it's a mattress, yeah. not a dinosaur. 
And so they're 500 bucks for a twin size, 950 for a king size mattress, which is, you know, is, is what you would pay less than what you would pay for, you know, if you go down to the mattress store. Uh, so if you want to try out a Casper mattress, want to buy one, go to casper.com Astro, use the promo code Astro, and they'll give you $50 off the price of a mattress. So it gets to even a better deal. So once again, thank you so much to Casper for sponsoring Astronomy Cast, and I'm sure this isn't the last time you'll hear from them or us. Thanks a lot. So who are you and what do you do? Who are you? Is this an interrogation? Pretty What's much. going on here? Yeah. I am Paul Sutter. I am uh, a astrophysicist and I work here uh, at two places actually. I'm bi-local. Uh, I have, I'm funded by a research fellowship position in Trieste, Italy. Uh, but my wife and my family live here in Columbus, Ohio, and so I have a visiting scholar here at OSU's Center for Cosmology and Astroparticle Physics, CCAP, if you're feeling affectionate. So uh, now you do a whole bunch of stuff, and what sort of, what would you say is the specialty, what kind of research do you do? Mainly? Yeah, I, I have two main specialties nowadays. One is on the topic of what are called cosmic voids, and the other is the topic on the first stars and what's called the epoch of reionization in the very early universe. All right, so we sort of looked at the things that you do, we cross-referenced it among the episodes that, that we've already talked about, and one of the things that we haven't spent really any time directly on is talking about this idea of cosmic voids. So well, you're saying... because they're empty. Yeah, yeah, so you're yeah, saying... So talking about nothing, yeah. yeah. Right. There's a hole in your knowledge, and that hole can be filled with holes. holes. Yeah. This yes. is perfect. Yeah. This is where I come in. This is where you come in. Because you know that joke about how uh, a specialist is someone who knows more and more about less and less? I'm the world's leading expert on nothing. On nothing. And I'm so proud of this fact. So, but there's something to this nothing. So why don't we I at suppose. least why don't we at least talk about the bare minimum here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so to get started, we have to zoom out. We have to go to the very biggest scales in the universe. We have to go to such big scales that entire galaxies with 300 or 500 billion stars are just a single point of light. So that's the scales we're talking about. We're looking at the whole entire universe at once. And we notice something about the way the galaxies are arranged in our universe. They're not just scattered around randomly. And this was actually a surprising discovery. When we first started mapping the universe in the late 70s and early 80s, we kind of expected the, the galaxies to just be like, like you spill sand on a table. It's just random. And this is that Hooker-Geller diagram with the man standing up in it. Yep, yep, exactly. We know it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. The galaxies are doing something. They're arranged in a pattern. And as we build bigger and bigger surveys and uh, uh, mapped out more and more of the universe, it became apparent that the galaxies are arranged in a pattern that we call the cosmic web because it kind of looks like a spider web. There's long strings of galaxies. There's dense clumps where the strings connect to each other. There's sheets of galaxies, like big two-dimensional walls. And then there's these big empty spaces with no galaxies at all. So what was the mechanism that got, that created that structure in the universe? Yeah, so, so uh, this is one of the coolest things I think about in, in cosmology, is the source of this structure in the universe on the grandest scales actually comes from sub-microscopic fluctuations in the very fundamental fabric of space-time. 
in the very early universe, and I mean early, like 10 to the minus 40 seconds after the Big Bang, uh, there's all these uh, virtual particles that are being created and destroyed. There's this quantum foam concept uh, that, that fundamental space-time is roiling and boiling. It's not smooth at all. And there was an event in the early universe called inflation where it took these sub-microscopic, super-fundamental fluctuations and inflated them, made them bigger to be like microscopic, not sub-microscopic, now they're microscopic. And that laid the seeds of structure because there are some places in the universe that were a teensy little bit more dense and some places in the universe that were a teensy little bit more less dense. And then over time, over 13 billion years, those little pockets, the ones that are a little bit more dense, have a little bit more gravity, so they attract a little bit more matter and a little bit more and more attractive, more gravity, more stuff. And you build up structures. And then those places that were a little bit empty, they get all their stuff gets sucked out of them. They get uh, pulled towards what become the clusters and the ropes and the filaments and the walls. And they leave behind these evacuated spaces. So actually this large scale structure pattern that we see in the universe today was seeded uh, at sub-microscopic subatomic scales over 13 billion years that's, ago. That's kind and of amazing. Go ahead. What, what's totally awesome about this is because light takes time to travel, we can see this entire process Yeah, happening. exactly, exactly. We, we look back to the cosmic microwave background, we see the initial hot and cold spots that traced out these mm -hmm, densities, mm -hmm. whether they be over or under. We look at the early universe when the first stars are turning on and reionizing the universe, and we see the structures. They're a lot more, well, homogeneous across that epoch of time and right. as we get closer and closer to now the universe gets more and more well uh like lacy swiss cheese instead of baby swiss cheese exactly and the universe will continue to evolve for billions of years so the cosmic web that we see today is is an evolving thing it's a changing thing under the influence of gravity and under the influence of the continued expansion of the universe so eventually the, the structures that we have now will continue to glue themselves together. And eventually the walls will disappear because they'll gravitationally collapse. The filaments, the ropes, those will get sucked down into the clumps. And eventually the cosmic web that we see will be replaced by isolated spheres, isolated clumps of, of gigantic clusters of galaxies. There'll, there'll be no more ropes, no more filaments, no more webs. And the voids will, I guess, disappear at this point. They'll just be the one big connected void. Yeah, exactly. In yeah. fact, in fact, there's some, some recent evidence, some analysis and simulations that suggest that uh, cosmic voids are actually all connected to each other, even in the universe today. Which means that if you found yourself in a cosmic void, one of these empty patches of the universe, you could travel to any other cosmic void in the universe without ever passing through a dense clump, without ever crossing a wall or a filament or a cluster, that they're already maybe completely connected together and that this connection will only continue to be enhanced as time goes on. Right. Space is mostly empty. It, space it, is, it, yeah. That's the, why it's called space. Right, yeah. right. I mean, you and I are mostly empty space, no matter what our bathroom scales right, right. may say. And, and 
it starts to be the smaller you are, the further you can go without having anything on your horizon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's evolving more and more towards nothing. Yeah. And and one of since these cosmic voids fill up most of the universe, between 70 and 90 percent of the volume of the universe is just these empty spaces with hardly any matter in it. Uh, this means that if you live somewhere like on the Earth, you do not live in a void. Because by definition, you're somewhere with lots of stuff, and and that means you're not in a void. But that also means wherever you live, you're also always right next to a void. Because the clusters and the filaments are where all the matters is so thin compared to the vast expanses of these voids, you're always on the edge of a cliff. And so uh, we've actually mapped this out in our local supercluster. Uh, you know, our own galaxy is right on the edge of a very vast, an incredibly vast void. What is the? Did they have a name for that void? The Bodhi's void. The Bodhi's I believe void. it's called. I believe it's it's both the largest and closest void. I, I could be wrong about that. And give us a sense of scale, because I know that like our supercluster is hundreds of megaparsecs across, right? Hundreds of right, right. So, so uh, a typical galaxy cluster, which is the largest gravitationally bound structure in the universe. Usually, you know, a few thousand galaxies all bound together, usually around one, maybe one and a half or two megaparsec across. It depends on how you define what is the edge of a cluster. A typical void is around 20 to 40 times larger. And they can go up to be 100 times larger. And, and what's kind of amazing is a lot of work, a lot of telescope time has gone into trying to answer just how empty are these voids. And I've seen some great v- researchers like uh, Martha Hazen presenting where it's like, well, and we found a galaxy, just one, one right. galaxy right. in yeah. this void. So you've got a, a, an area that, as you said, is... 20 times bigger than a typical galaxy cluster, but there's one galaxy in Check this out. This is something void. super cool about... Uh, okay, I think everything about cosmic voids is super cool, but here's one thing in particular. We, we do a galaxy survey, and when you do a galaxy survey, you have a certain limit uh, to the brightness of galaxies that you can capture in that survey. If they're too dim, not enough stars and stuff, you just won't see it because your telescope isn't big enough. You didn't look at the sky long enough. You do that survey, and you'll map out this giant cosmic web. Now, let's say you picked out one of the voids, any void at random, where it looks completely empty, and you decided to zoom in on that void and do a more detailed survey with more time to try to pick out faint galaxies, small galaxies. You will find in that void a population of small galaxies, And those small, dim galaxies will be arranged in a cosmic web. So each void contains like a faint cosmic web. And then if you look inside of one of those sub-voids and do it again, you will find a very faint cosmic web. Right. Even faint. Eventually, you'll run out of galaxies because there's only so much gas in the universe. So if we look in simulations and we look at dark matter, which is like the skeleton of this cosmic web, uh, this keeps going. There's this... fractal. It's... Now, I can't use the F word, technically, uh, because fractal cosmology has this very storied history. Like Mandelbrot, you know, the Mandelbrot said, right. he thought the whole structure of the universe was totally fractal. There was maybe some evidence early on and, and say, oh, you know, the answer is fractals everywhere. In the early 90s, this view became highly... 
uh, you know, not something that reasonable people would talk about. So I don't like to use the word fractal, but in the co in these cosmic voids, and we've actually seen evidence of this in our analyses that there is a certain self-similar structure to the voids where you can zoom in and you recover similar kinds of properties and you zoom in, you recover similar. There's a fractal-like nature. And and the, the problem here for those of you who are missing the mathematical subtleness of this is when you say something is fractal in the non-colloquial way, um, if you say something is fractal in the highly technical mathematical way, you can identify something's fractal number. So for instance, different modern artists, you can tell their paintings apart because the splatter patterns have a different fractal number. Well, it turns out that you can't really say something is fractal if the number that describes how the structure scales changes. And the web that's inside of a void might not have the same fractal number mm -hmm. as the parent. Therefore, you can't actually say it's fractal in the specific scientific sense, but you can say it's webs all the way down. Right. So it's all the similar. Sure, right. but all of the fractal astronomers can save their emails now. Yes, right? yes. Email, they don't bother. They don't have yes. to send I have seen one author in one paper describing this phenomena call voids a non-lacunar multifractal. I'm not exactly sure what those words <laughs> right. mean, but it sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Sounds uh, recursive to me. It so. sounds, it, it yeah. sounds, and eventually this scale does break. It, this, this, these properties do break down because eventually you get down to things like galaxies themselves. Right. Like I'm not a fractal. I'm not self-similar. Right. I, last time I checked, and so this self, this is only on uh, within right. a certain range of very it's not large a series scales. of Pauls nesting inside each other. Like Russian nesting dolls to the vastest scales of the universe. That would be highly disturbing. Yeah. We're that very we like one Paul. Yeah. We do not one Paul is more than yeah. enough. So right, but but I think if we get down to that sort of smallest scale, if I'm an astronaut floating around, if I'm a Boltzmann brain that suddenly appeared in the middle of one of these cosmic voids, um, what's around me? Yeah, you know what? If if uh, I've gotten this question before, like if if we've if our in intelligent life arose in one of these very dim galaxies that inhabit the voids, uh, what would what would the universe look like? And the answer is it wouldn't look much different. You know, our night sky is dominated by like six thousand really really close stars. All right, whether you're a void galaxy or a galaxy in a cluster, like that's not really going to change. Maybe the colors will change, the population of stars will change. But the night sky won't look much different. Yeah. And then if you're trying, you won't have something like the Andromeda galaxy that's barreling in on us. You you won't have that. Right. So in perfectly dark conditions, you won't see that fuzzy spot. It, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. You wouldn't have the large and small Magellanic clouds. Probably not. Exactly. Right. Your galaxy will probably be smaller and dimmer in general. Fewer yeah. stars. It'll be a dwarf no, galaxy. No uh, grand spiral design because that requires probably friends. Probably not. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but then when you start doing cosmology... Uh, you know, when you're the, the Edwin Hubble equivalent, uh, all the other answers come out pretty much the same. Right. But then you would, I guess, in the in the medium term, as you had sort of the beginning power telescopes, you wouldn't see any other galaxies. No. no. And then as you got really powerful telescopes, then you would start to see those like, galaxies. Oh, man, like there's all sorts of stuff in right. the universe. It yeah. all just happens to be billions of light years away. Yeah. yeah. The, right. the what are galaxies debate would have been delayed until probably the 60s. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but the, like, let's not even have a galaxy. You're, you're an astronaut floating in the middle of space 
right in the center of one of these voids, far away from all the galaxies. Centers are special places. It makes us feel uncomfortable. So what? What now? What are you seeing around you? You're seeing, I mean, nothing. It would be but... the same thing as if you were imagine uh, rocketing off of the Milky Way and being transported far enough away, where. You can't even see a disk of the Milky Way, any structure. It's just like a blob of light or a fuzz of light. And you would see that if your eyes are actually capable of detecting that minuscule light. Uh, the, the sky around you would be filled with uh, these pinpricks of light. But these aren't stars. These are entire, ga- right. entire galaxies. And then what is the actual like density of the stuff that's around you? Like, you know, we can imagine, you know, here on Earth, we've got the air, we've got air pressure. Mm-hmm. When you're in the middle of the solar system, you've got the interplanetary medium and it's right. particles zipping around. And if you get out into the intergalactic medium, then the density goes down even more, just a few mm-hmm. hundred or thousand particles per square meter. So how how undense is the middle? Right, right. So we actually uh, decide this by definition so that we can make progress. Uh, if you take the mean density of the universe, if you took every bit of matter and dark matter and radiation, everything, and smeared it out uniformly across the universe, that's your mean density. Voids are, by definition, anything around less than 20% of that mean density. And that definition gets you something like 80% of the volume of the universe. By contrast, something like a galaxy cluster, one of these large agglomerations of galaxies, by definition are around 200 times the mean density of the universe. So you've got a lot of stuff crammed into very, very tiny volumes. Right. So you would still have occasional atoms of hydrogen floating oh, past there's, you. Oh, uh, uh, there's, uh, there's still gas in the voids. There's still dark matter in the voids. It's There are regions, there are pockets that are completely, truly, totally void of matter. But usually we think of voids as just the less empty kind of basins in the universe rather than the holes in the cosmic web. At, at that background level of stuff that's flying around, the, the voids are still going to be filled with those high-energy particles that are released in supernova events. There's, oh, yeah. There's, there's high-energy neutrinos. There's the cosmic microwave background. Uh, there's distant starlight. Uh, there's all that kind of background fluff. Uh, that makes up the character it, of the universe. It's the structures that decide they need to be elsewhere because gravity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. And so what does studying these voids really kind of tell you about the past and future yeah. evolution of the universe? Yeah, like the this story that we told of the growth of the structure of the universe is 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 just if you were like if you were to slice open a cupcake. Right, and you see all these tiny little holes, and you see little structures of, of delicious uh, food. Uh, if you change the ingredients in the cupcake, you change the structure at the end of it. And if you change the recipe, if you change how long you cooked it, you end up with a different kind of cupcake. If you change your recipe for Swiss cheese, you end up with different kinds and sets of holes in your cheese. And so by looking at the structure of the universe and trying to follow and track its evolution, we learn about dark energy, we learn about the properties of dark matter, we learn about the mass of the neutrino. We, because if you change these fundamental components, you're changing the recipe of the universe and you end up with a different thing after 13 billion years. And go ahead. One of the coolest tangible ways of, of looking at this is we know that dark matter and regular, we call it baryonic matter, all has been around since the beginning. And 
those initial overdensities, as the material, whether it be dark matter or baryonic matter, tried to flow into those overdensities, the baryonic matter, as it lit up, as stars formed, as radiation pressure became a thing, those baryons stopped being able to fall in because they were getting pushed out. But dark matter, it doesn't care. It doesn't want to interact with anything. And so it's in trying to figure out how do we balance that dark matter that is perfectly happy to flow anywhere gravity's pulling versus the baryons which can be pushed around. It's in balancing just those two ideas, baryons versus dark matter, that gets us to the starting points of all of our models. And, and here's a question uh, uh, to let you think about how important voids are. Where does dark energy live? Everywhere. Everywhere. Okay. Do you, when you bought this coffee this morning, did you care about the influence of dark energy? No. No, because there's all sorts of complicated physics on top of that effect of dark energy. There's mm -hmm. electromagnetic radiation, there's the gravity of the Earth. All I care about is the chemical bonds right now. All you coffee care about, is yeah, chemical exactly, bonds. Exactly. You don't care about this dark energy that's kind of permeating right. the fabric of space. Trying to tear my coffee exactly. apart. In the voids, dark energy is dominant because there's so little other stuff, that's where dark energy lives. That's where dark energy has its influence on the universe is in the voids. And, and this leads to some really neat physics. Uh, there, there was a talk I saw years ago, I wish I could remember who gave it so I could give them credit, but they were talking about a galaxy potential merger that wasn't going to happen because as the two galaxies came together, the one didn't have enough gravitational potential energy to overcome both the velocity of the galaxy that was flying past and the effects of dark energy. Right. And so the, it, so the, the universe is expanding those two galaxies apart from each other faster than they could come together. And, and it was right on the boundary between becoming a future merger and two galaxies right. that pass in the night because of that cosmic expansion. Right, and I know some cosmologists have a sort of a, have a problem with the idea that that like the Lanakea supercluster, that at a certain point when 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 objects when cannot even come together because of their mutual gravity, because the dark energy is pushing them apart faster than they're coming together. Can you really call it a gravitationally bound mm -hmm. structure mm -hmm. when, you know, it's not going to form into a big cluster in the far, far future. Right. It's going to fly apart and eventually be completely invisible to one another. Yeah, and what's driving this flying apart is the voids getting bigger. Right. Uh, and matter is continuing to stream onto the gravitationally bound clusters, and those clusters are getting farther apart because the voids in between them are expanding. They're inflating like little bubbles. Now, we've only known about dark energy since, whatever, 1998, mm -hmm. and so we've known about cosmic voids probably a lot longer than that. Right. But we knew the universe was expanding. We knew, but what impact did the discovery of dark energy have on our understanding of how these voids formed and yeah, yeah, so we knew, uh, like, right? when we first discovered cosmic voids and this kind of large-scale structure of the universe, that was actually a bit of a surprise, like I mentioned. So we actually had to kind of figure out, like, where, you know, where could this structure actually come from? And that led us on to some very fundamental theories of the way the early universe worked. And so you, pretty much any kind of universe you can design, you'll end up with some population of voids. Some with some sets of properties of sizes and shapes, you'll find that. And 
when we discovered dark energy, uh, like the whole community just said, oh, crap. Like, it made the math so much worse. It made the math so much worse. Einstein um, was right. Einstein was right. Um, he, we're okay with that yeah. part. We're it's okay the with math that. that we dislike. It's the math part. And it's like, what in the world is this dark energy stuff? Like, don't know. We, we just don't know. So now the program for the past 15 years and the program continuing to the past next 20 or 30 years isn't even in the ballpark of trying to understand what dark energy is. We're just trying to measure it more precisely. Like, has it been constant for 13 billion years? Is it getting faster yeah. or slower? Like, we're just trying yeah. to measure that. And so we're trying to come up with any kind of probe we can from multiple different directions to just try to measure it. And and this is where we're we're investing in our future with the W first spacecraft mm-hmm. that's coming. There's the Hobby Eberly Telescope Dark Energy uh, mission. Uh, we actually, if all goes well, we'll be working with this with CosmoQuest. We'll be working with the McDonald Observatory team. It's going to take every eye we can possibly get trying to track out the dark matter through how it deforms light. That's unfortunately all we've got and the dark energy as it's traced by supernova and other effects. Mm -hmm. But I mean, has dark energy led, you know, at a certain point, dark energy became more and more dominant and had more and more of an impact, like a a blowing wind that's increasing, Mm -hmm. right? That's accelerating the effect and the creation of these voids, right? Yeah, exactly. And so uh, when I said dark energy, like dominates in these voids, when... Dark energy, we say about 5 billion years ago, dark energy kind of overwhelmed the universe. And it's not that it changed. It was just that things spread out enough that it could become the dominant factor. The the way to think about it is if, if you're on roller skates and someone starts pushing on you and the push is constant... You're initially moving very slowly, but over time you pick up more and more and more speed. Well, it's kind of been happening that way with our universe where gravity was like originally I've got it I'm holding you all together and now gravity's like don't got it <laughs> and uh, it's that dark energy right. push that is racing everything yeah. apart and out of control and it's this process it started in the voids because they were the least dense parts of the universe they were the least resistant right. and so when you start playing with dark energy models like maybe it's a little bit hotter and faster maybe it's a little bit slower maybe it oscillates you see the effects in the voids first. It changes how they expand and how they grow and merge together and live before it affects the universe on average as a whole. And so I know some of the simulations of the entire universe, these supercomputer simulations, have gotten pretty good at at simulating the universe that we see today. Mm-hmm. And then using that, I'm sure there's like some kind of number for dark energy that some, you know, at, you know, that they're putting into the simulation. Right. So you know, you mentioned like maybe it's increasing, maybe it's decreasing, maybe it oscillates. What sort of based on the most recent kinds of simulations do we think dark energy was doing over this? Yeah, as far as we can tell, and this is a statement that carries like a ten or twenty percent uncertainty with it. How many sigmas do we get here? Zero. It's more like two sigma. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the universe is or dark energy consistent with with it being totally constant. Constant across space and constant across time uh, for this for this whole time. We cannot and we cannot detect any deviation, which is from a relief f- 
for the possibility the universe will tear itself apart in the future. Yeah, yes. I mean, you know, if you're afraid of the big rip scenario, uh, this phantom dark energy scenario, that's a good thing. If you're trying to find any theoretical hook where you can develop some model of what dark energy is, it's no a idea. bad thing yeah. because uh, this flat, constant... Doesn't constant, match anything we'd imagine. It doesn't match anything we can imagine. And because it's like the simplest answer, it's like there's nothing there uh, to give the theorists anything to work with to, to yeah. find anything different right. about... Like they have their pet theory and yeah. then their pet theory looks like this plain old vanilla right. model. Like... And, right. So, and dark so, energy isn't that much energy. We're talking about just a couple of protons worth of energy per cubic meter. So there's there's more energy in a sneeze than there is in dark energy. So you know, you described this earlier on that the, these voids, you know, are increasing, and eventually the voids themselves will will disappear. Mm-hmm. So how long do you have a job for? <laughs> uh, uh, to any funding bodies, I have enough job. I have enough work to do at least until tenure, right? Yeah. But I'm thinking in billions of years. Oh, billions of years. Okay. Uh, you know that's a good question. Usually we stop our simulations at the present day because that's the limit of our observations. Uh, but you can run these forward and see the voids begin to merge. Uh, see the structure continue to uh, collect. The problem with it, with running simulations forward is that depends on the exact properties of dark energy. If dark energy is constant, we'll have one kind of universe 10 billion, 50 billion, 100 billion, 100 trillion years from now. If dark energy is even a little bit different, that tiny little bit adds up over these billions of years and you end up with a completely different future history of the evolution of voids and the evolution right. of structure. But, but like somewhere between a few dozen billion years and a trillion years, you've still got work in this and before you have to look for a new career yeah yeah let's go with that yeah Yeah. before there's like no more distinct voids that we can identify with our algorithms well paul thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today we really appreciate you uh talking about nothing in and and uh taking this whole episode to do it i could talk about nothing all day yeah and and it's great to just get to record live in the same room with fraser and having you here that we can bounce new ideas off of even if we are bouncing them off of nothing (laughs) off of nothing thank you so much for having me um where can people find out more about you uh they can find more about me on my website which is pmsutter.com uh you you can also follow me on twitter at Paul Matt Sutter. See, the P and the M stand for Paul and the Matt. Right. That's the name. And then also Facebook, uh, Paul Matt Sutter. Instagram, Paul Matt Sutter. And you do a podcast. And I do a podcast called Ask a Spaceman. So if you say, hey, uh, Spaceman, what is a cosmic void? Uh, Then I'll just repeat everything I've been saying for the past half hour. And you can find out all of this at 365daysofastronomy.org. Thanks for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by Astrosphere New Media Association, Fraser Kane, and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at infoastronomycast.com. Tweet us at astronomycast. Like us on Facebook or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+ every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you missed the live event, you can always catch up over at CosmoQuest.org. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. 
just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson. 